Welcome to the Higher Jiu-Jitsu Story Show. On this episode of the podcast, I, t- I sit down with Nick Avery and we have a conversation about his initial introduction to Taekwondo, which was his first martial art at a young age. Uh, he did that for a, f- a few years and then sort of had a break throughout uh, high school. And then when he started uh, college, he got involved with Jiu-Jitsu a little bit later on down the track. And uh, he talked me through his experiences training out of three or four different gyms uh, in different locations that he lived at um, throughout his life. And we had a conversation about his a job he basically had through a contractor to NASA. So that's pretty interesting. And we just sort of in general um, talked about how his focus on jiu-jitsu is more from a mechanical sort of he's inspired by engineering, so a mechanical point of view, along with um, self-defense more so than sport. And and it's definitely what you see when you roll with him on the mats as well. So interesting to see how the way he actually trains sort of echoes what he was saying. And uh, he actually shares a pretty crazy story about being held at gunpoint and robbed. So make sure you tune in, listen to this episode, and I hope you enjoy Cheers. And we are live. Nick, welcome. Thanks, man. It's good to be back in the cross. Yeah. Was this, have you been here many times? Uh, With me, anyway? Try to avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the um, the uh, UFC when we do that? Yeah, you know. Uh, sometimes the local flavor is a bit interesting up here. It is. It's. I, I live here and it's pretty interesting being on the streets. Diverse community, air yeah, quotes. You can say that. <laughs> uh, um, so let's kick things off. You, so I, my understanding is that you started Taekwondo at a really young age. And that is, I think, what your first sort of experience with martial arts? Yeah, uh, probably year four. This is back in the US, If in case you guys think I'm Canadian. I'm not. Um, and it was like... Mondays, uh, after school, uh, Taekwondo teacher came in and had an after school program. Yeah. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years and ended up being fairly good at it, I guess, which is a bit arbitrary because it's point sparring, but I enjoyed it as a kid. Yeah. And when you're a kid, it teaches you, you know, discipline and flexibility. But I do remember getting the wind knocked out of me uh, once or twice from a kick that I just didn't know was coming. Yeah. And I gotta, I have still have a bunch of trophies from that that are broken or <laughs> just falling apart. So I haven't a bit been of able dust to, on them. Yeah, I haven't been able to throw away yet. I used to go to Taekwondo camp in the summer. Uh, I still have my wooden bow staff and wooden training commas somewhere. Um, if you don't know what commas are, it's like a, it's a baton with a blade on it. Right, so Taekwondo, my understanding was that it's 
basically just punching and kicking and you kind of learn sequences and you have to do the sequences in order to get the belt promotions or progressions pretty that's a good chunk of it yeah um, so how, how does the uh, what do you, you call it a baton uh, commas commas how, how do they come into that so if you go to compete you have uh, forms which is the kata which is a, essentially you fighting invisible ninjas okay. and that's a performance and only as an adult did I realize that's it's essentially a choreographed performance slash dance. And so you get judged on that. There's fighting, which is point sparring, and then weapons. Right. Uh, I don't think I ever entered any weapons, but uh, I guess the highlight of my childhood career was taking second place at a nationals tournament right. in point sparring. And you and you were competing and training from what the age of six to how old? Uh, I wouldn't. Maybe it was six. Maybe it was like eight. I don't know. Probably a couple of years. I think I was a red belt. Yeah. Around year six, and then I, after that, I went to middle school. Went to a different school, mm-hmm. and pretty much stopped it altogether for right. a long time. Right. How, can I, let me ask you this on. Taekwondo, how do they, at a young age, because obviously there's high kicks and the flexibility that people have is like pretty impressive when you watch it. How, how do they get kids to like build the flexibility to kick really high or is it just a natural thing that you can do at a young age? I don't, I don't remember being able to kick anyone in the head. Um, I remember my, our instructor had a steel stretching device because he was kind of old and it looked like a torture rack, and it pretty much was. And you, you sat on it and it put your legs in like a saddle sort of thing, and you crank this wheel and it just brings your legs apart. Oh, geez. Like, that sounds like <laughs> something out of soul. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. But uh, yeah, we just stretched on the gym floor. Um, but I never connected um, the fighting forms, the katas, with the sparring. And because they're not really connected. So we would practice all these forms over and over again, these punch blocks, and make it look really cool and fancy and have a uh, an intimidating presence about you. And then you go and spar and you wouldn't know how to do anything because we never worked on head movement or um, really blocking that much or yeah. counter punching or footwork that much. It was just kind of bounce around and try to tag him in the head or the stomach and that gets you a point um it's a it's an interesting sport but man it's got it's got holes in it for self-defense i think i remember doing um like one or two taekwondo classes myself as a young kid and it was at the local raft base and it was like i don't know i just went in at a very young age, similar age six, did two classes and didn't like it and then never did any martial arts ever again mm. until jiu-jitsu really. But, um, so that was, so you said you did it for a couple of years. Yeah. So that might have made then, you, what, 10 or 11 when you sort of moved to middle school and stopped doing that? Yeah, and then no martial arts for probably eight years wow. or something. Yeah, okay, so how did... Just middle school, high school, all that drama. Yeah, Plus, I grew up in a town of 900 people, so it's not like there's a lot of martial arts gyms around. Yeah. So. It doesn't sound like there's a lot of many things around. No. 
<laughs> One, a, lot of, a lot of trees, mostly. <laughs> cows. And so after you... So obviously you didn't do it again for another eight years. So you're 18, 19 at that stage. Finished school. Yeah. Uh, so when I was in college, um, I needed... I needed one credit to make a full-time load and I needed an easy course or something and I remember in the course book it said karate and I was like oh all right let's do it I need an easy a to boost my GPA yeah um, at university excuse me I gotta translate so it ended up being taekwondo but nobody knows the difference yeah or cared to change it and it was fairly similar and I kind of got back into it um, and then I started this is when I was studying engineering so I was probably at my peak skepticism <laughs> phase <laughs> of where you just start seeing how the world works and um, marketing and advertising and all that stuff can just cloud what really what really happens underneath yeah which was good so I think I took this maybe two semesters uh, and there was a pivotal moment uh, when we were doing a headlock defense and by this point somehow I had already found and downloaded some videos from Basruten. Uh, if you guys don't know, he's a, a Dutch kickboxer, is a commentator commentator on Inside MMA, right. if that show still exists. He's the bald Dutch guy. Anyway, he's been Not in a few show. movies with Kevin James as well. And he was a former UFC heavyweight champion and had all these videos that I just torrented with the amazing internet and before before they cracked down on any of that downloading. Yeah. And I was just like, holy shit, this guy has legs like a frog and he's just destroying people and he was funny and I, I loved his videos so I downloaded all of them and started watching them and go, oh, this is, this is real martial arts. Yeah. So back to this one class where the guy has you headlock and we're in the university's gymnasium on wooden floors doing taekwondo, I guess. Trying to get an A. <laughs> Trying to get an A. Not too hard, just show up. And the instructor goes, all right, so somebody grabs your head like this. Uh, the skin on the back of the tricep is really sensitive. There's a lot of nerves in there. No. So no. reach up and pinch, pinch the skin on the back of the tricep. And you guys can try this. Sure enough, it hurts. It hurts really bad. Yeah. But it doesn't do anything to alleviate the choke if that person really wants... Well, if someone... Yeah. If somebody really wants your head. Um, and I just remember thinking, what if they have a jacket on? Or what if they're drunk? And you can't really feel that sort of skin level of pain when you're drunk. Yeah. And I was going, oh... This isn't good. <laughs> so I wasn't I wasn't taking taekwondo for for self defense. It was really for that extra credit uh, that I needed for a full time load and the easy A. But seeing that whole, I was go I was realizing that 
I needed, I really got interested in learning like some real techniques. Yeah. Seeing that in conjunction with bus route and sort of opening your eyes a bit more to like what's, what the reality of self-defense martial arts is. Exactly. Yeah. And then, so there was a martial arts club that I hung out with a couple of my buddies and we just, I think we, you know, played with an Americana and I think with that head, that headlock was where I first saw you could sit behind and just pick the person up. Mm. And in one of Bosruton's instructional videos, I think he fractured his partner's rib dropping him on the mat. That's the one where you push the head over and you pick him up and drop them. Yeah. Um, but I think he just landed on him instead of staying upright. <laughs> so it's always an option, but um, let's see. So while I was at while I was studying engineering, I was pretty busy trying not to fail. So it was pretty taxing for me. And when I was 21, I took two semesters off to do an internship in Houston, Texas. Uh, I was lucky enough to get a, a shot working in the space program, which was pretty cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you want to tell me, before you go anyway, because <laughs> I don't want to skim over that, do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Because that sounds really interesting. Um, it's going to sound like I'm making this up. No, go for it. I did two phone interviews and got offered a job um, with a NASA contractor called United Space Alliance. And I got hired to uh, as an, like an intern to help with the tools used to train astronauts for spacewalks. Wow. So I did this for seven months, completely changed my life. Uh, in many ways, but a big part of that was I finally didn't have homework and I had uh, an okay income. I think it was $22 an hour, which was... In the States at a young age, that's not too bad. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I think the NASA interns were getting like $13 an hour, which is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, all right, I've got the time. I Googled... Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Houston and Gracie Baja came up. It was 15 minutes or something from work. Walked in there one day uh, and there was a guy who everyone called Babalu and it wasn't Hinato Sobral, but he just kind of looked like him. So everyone called him Babalu, but it turned out to be a pretty well-known Jiu-Jitsu guy um, who's known as Draculino. Okay. Uh, he's one of the OGs. I think he's a fifth degree uh, black belt now. Really cool guy. A lot of charisma. Um, really entertaining and, and has produced some top level black belts uh, in sport. But I had no idea when I was there. Absolutely no idea. It's all in hindsight, right? Yeah. Um, so what was your first experience? I showed like? I showed up with my taekwondo gi, and I remember. I was going, um, oh, so I'm a red belt in Taekwondo. What is that in Jiu-Jitsu? And, the guy, and this guy, Babalu, just looked at me. He's like, yeah, that's the top of the top level. We'll, we'll give you a white belt. And I was like, cool, great. <laughs> that's fine. I had no idea how few red belts there were. Um, I just didn't know a whole lot about other martial arts as well, I guess. Um, I remember the, the f- I think the first class since the Draculino was away giving a seminar somewhere, 
the assistant coaches were running class and I just sort of hopped in and at the end it was sparring and I was kind of like what do we just go <laughs> what do what do I do and I, I was paired with a kid about about my size and my age and we started standing and I remember he shot in for a double leg and I just sort of I think I just grabbed an arm in guillotine and it was kind of the only thing that I knew but he just sort of fell into it and I got lucky there and I was like oh was that that was it okay <laughs> tapped him cool first class, uh, first class <laughs> I think so Jeez, I think so that's, yeah that's good uh, I also remember I think this was my first class um, they paired me with a blue belt who's a cop I think, he, and he's a black belt now. Um, short, stocky guy, and he was like, "All right, just kind of, you know, try and get him." Mm. And he just sort of turtled up and played defensively, and I couldn't do a thing to him. And I had been playing around with um, jujitsu stuff with my friends back at, at college, and. There's just nothing I could do. <laughs> and he wasn't even attacking me. He was just shutting me down. And I was like, oh, wow, I really, I really don't know anything. Okay, this is good. I'm going to get some real, I want to get some real education here. Yeah. And I did. So I was there for seven months. Uh, and I left as a, I think it was a three or four stripe white belt. Um, so I was training probably two to three days a week. And Saturdays they had an open mat, which was cool, and I got to pick up some stuff from the the higher belts. But right, how how did they? Let me ask you, how did they? How did they structure their classes during the week? Ah, so you said open really mat organized. Was how was it? Yeah, really organized. So you would get a, a placard when you come in, and that's your attendance record, kind cool. of an analog system. But they would mark it. Uh, so everybody lines up against the wall. Everyone has their placard in their hand, and then they collect them give them to somebody running the office and then just mark down your attendance. Right. But Gracie Baja is designed, I don't want to use the word franchise, but it kind of is. And that's how they built such a huge team where they set sort of a top-down management and every class is part of a curriculum and you can go to any Gracie Baja around the world and sort of jump in. Right. And it will be similar? Yeah, it'll be very similar. They all do the exact same warm-up. They all count to 10 and do push-ups, sit-ups. Uh, it's pretty much the same warm-up, jumping jacks. Yeah. It's not always jujitsu related. It's just kind of an aerobic yeah. workout just to get the blood moving. There's um, nothing wrong with that, though. No. It, in fact, I remember being very exhausted. <laughs> for, yeah, now we've got to do jujitsu. Damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So how, how, what was your experience there like in the seven or eight months that you were there? Oh, it, it started to click because, one, I was having the greatest time of my life. Uh, I had money. I was working at NASA. I got to see astronauts on a weekly basis. And the leverage just sort of appeared to me. Yeah. I, saw, I saw Kimura. Oh, my God. There's, there's the leverage. Yeah keep the arm bent at a 90 degree angle that's max and I was like wow I'm really it's starting to click yeah uh it's my <laughs> my first promotion was two stripes I remember that you got two at once yeah oh lovely I think it was because I came in with a little 
a little experience, so I had a little idea of what was going on. Um, and you had the right frame of mind as well to sort of notice those um, from a mechanical perspective, being an engineer. So yeah. you can see the angles and see what's happening, which, which does make it easier to learn. I think so. Um, in that, ever since... I started there. I don't know if there's a day or a week that's gone by that I haven't thought about jujitsu at mm. some point during the day. Uh, so I finished my internship and then went back to back to university for another year and a half to finish my degree, where I was poor again and I had no free time. So uh, I think I trained once in the next year and a half. Yeah, but I still thought about it every single day. And I remember watching the world championships on my computer and I trained with one or two guys just sort of playing around and um, <laughs> I just uh, I just had to put it on hold. Yeah. There, were, there was bigger fish to fry. More important things that you needed to yeah. attend to, but you had the bug though, that's the thing. I had the bug. It was never, it was never leaving me. <laughs> it's funny how people get, um, once they get a taste for jujitsu, like an actual a decent taste where they it start they start to see it working and they start to understand then it's like they're 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 in and even if people disappear like we had the guy who's in our gym now and he's been out of jujitsu for 15 years and is back doing it again people oh, always yeah, they yeah. always come back to it it's never yeah. like completely gone which is good yeah it's, that's a good, good thing so so it's like an infection, but it's good for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So you, um, how long? How long was your break? Uh, once you went back to uni, you had what hour and a, a year and a half. Back year and a half, and then another summer. So probably a two year gap before I got back into a jujitsu gym again. And this is when I uh, moved to another state and got my first job at a naval shipyard, and. Did a couple classes at a few gyms and wound up at sort of a an MMA CrossFit type gym because it was big and it was um, they gave me a military discount for being a civilian military employee, which was cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I went there and the head coach uh, was Scott Oates, um, who was a former SEAL. Wow. So that's that's nice credentials. If you want to learn martial arts from someone yeah. who knows what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> even an MMA sort of type defense thing. Yeah. that's That sounds good. What was that gym like? Um, heavy pressure. <laughs> Intense. Yeah, I would have thought so. Not super beginner friendly, but I still didn't know that there was a really a difference between... Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, the self-defense and sport Jiu-Jitsu. I thought just Jiu-Jitsu is one thing. Yeah. You can go to any gym, see what you like. This is it. And um, Hibiro School, so um, an affiliate of Salo and Shanji Hibiro, mm -hmm. where their headquarters is in San Diego, Jiu-Jitsu University. Right. Uh, they've won more medals than most people ever will. From a sport perspective? From a sport perspective, yeah. Right, okay. And they, they're under, I think, Hoyler Gracie. But we did a lot of tricky guards. And being in a big military town, I was 
probably the second or third smallest guy in the gym. And I got smashed for three years, just consistently. <laughs> Jeez. How, how, how did you go there? Did you jujitsu develop? It's still there, even though you were struggling? Um, I have let go of a lot of those sport habits. Yeah. They were, they were working for a while, but they did not work against the big, strong guys. Yeah. I just run out of gas, especially when you're on the bottom side control or mountain. I just wasn't understanding the principles uh, that much because my, instru- my coach, uh, Scott, is so former SEAL, mm-hmm. not a small guy, right? Probably doesn't remember what it's like to be a small guy. Uh, the assistant coach, John, is six foot four and used to be a, like a triathlete. So he's a, he's a big guy as well. So I wasn't learning jujitsu from a small guy perspective. Yeah. You're not, look, you're not trying to learn how to defend yourself against a bigger person or a, or a yeah. f- female against a bigger and stronger male. You're learning how right. to and I, overpower people. <laughs> and I don't recall anybody ever mentioning you can get hit from here. You can get punched from here. Protect your head. None of that. It was pretty sport-oriented. Right. Which is okay in that environment if you're trying to compete. Yeah. And you're focused in that path, but then... But no one ever explained the difference to me. And I didn't have, uh, like, I guess the cognizance to to know the difference. You didn't experience that with Gracie Baja at all? No. They have some self-defense in their fundamentals program. And then once you go through that, you can go to the advanced class, and I don't think I ever looked back. And that's mostly tailored towards sport and competition? Yeah. Right, okay. A lot of spider guard, and um, yeah, I did. I used to do a lot of spider guard, and I had the worst hangnails on my fingers (laughs) from those grips. Yeah. Uh, Because one of his best students, uh, Homolu Bahal, is known for his spider guard. He's kind of retired now, but... You just you couldn't pass his guard, no matter what. <laughs> really, wow. It's really tough. Um, let's see. So, I mean, did you yeah. get your blue belt at that gym? Three years of training there. Yeah, I did. Uh, that was a that was a good test. So that was my first blue belt. <laughs> yeah, you've had a couple. Yeah, <laughs> going for my third one. So, <laughs> uh, I got that when. Oh, yeah, I remember that day. Uh, I, it was my 25th birthday. Oh, really? I got my blue belt my 25th birthday, which was exactly a year after uh, when I was robbed at gunpoint on my 24th birthday. Which, you, yeah. <laughs> tell tell, uh, tell so me about that. It was, yeah. <laughs> just before we go anywhere, so, let's just stop. That's not a good segue. one year. Yeah. Tell me about that. Uh, so if you if you're thinking of visiting New Orleans, um, visit, go somewhere else. <laughs> there's, there's plenty other places to get shit faced. Like, <laughs> no, um, I I had a, a college friend who was living in New Orleans um, who happened to look like the girl from Frozen, so that might have had something to do with it. Um, but she invited me out out there and I said, oh, I've never been to New Orleans, so might as well take some time off for my birthday, just go down for a couple days yeah, and then get back to work. And I was having a pretty good 
time until that point. Uh, and I think I was a three or four stripe white belt at this point. So I had done, I had watched Baz Rutten's uh, Lethal Street self-defense DVD right. enough times that I could still hear his voice, which is pretty cool because he has, he has, I think, two gun defenses in the end. Um, and I, I watched that and we practiced that with a, like a, an air pistol. Right unloaded of course but I remember we used to like cock it because it was a, a manual air pistol and then see if our friends could like pull the trigger in time um, so we yeah we used to do that a bit in college anyway I was in New Orleans less than 24 hours actually uh, I think I landed one night and we went out and it was it's a cool old place um until you get to really understand the city and realize that it's below sea level. Okay. They keep building, the levees are probably four meters high to keep the water out. So yeah. every time there's a hurricane or a tropical storm, the whole city floods. Right. And then the pollution from all the oil refineries leaches into the soil. It's, and so this, the city is sinking, literally, and full of pollution, tons of poverty. Everyone's houses gets destroyed every 10 years. So why would you want to go there? <laughs> because New Orleans is known for its parties. Right. And I guess that sort of distracts everyone from the terrible state that the city's in. And it's kind of the old jazz town where you can drink in the streets and gamble and Mardi Gras big there. Right, okay. It's, it's tourism. They just... Got to have something yeah, going on. Yeah, they polish it up. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they polish it up. <laughs> so how? So tell me about how the um, mugging came about. Sure. Uh, so it's my birthday night, and we were getting dressed up to go out to dinner. I don't know, probably 9.30, 10 o'clock. And we'd walked around this block before, which was quiet, peaceful, Kind of like a suburb in Sydney, you know, some nice big overhanging fig trees. Yeah. A few street lamps here and there. And I remember my friend asked me, oh, do you want to walk um, down the street with the trolleys to get to the restaurant or the back way? And since we had such a cool walk the other, the night before, and it was perfect weather out, um, I was like, oh, let's take the back way. That'll be nice which is ironically my decision. And New Orleans has this weird tradition, which is kind of cool. If it's your birthday, you pin a dollar to your lapel with like a safety pin. Right. And as we walked around that day, people come up to you and they give you money. Really? They pin a dollar onto this onto your chest and it's supposed to be you like collecting cab fare for the ride home. So we'd go through the markets and somebody'd say, Oh, hey, it's your birthday. Oh man, here here's a dollar, you know, hope that helps, you know. Welcome to the city. And I was like, Oh, this place is cool. Yeah, that like, is that is gonna, cool. I'm gonna grab a hurricane, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so ironically, and I, it's taken me a long time to find the humor in this, but 
If you're gonna rob someone, you should probably go for the guy with money pinned to his chest. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's a, <laughs> like, that's a good that's, place to start. It's a good place to start. Yeah, how much how much did you have on your chest at this point? Probably nine dollars. Jesus, not much. <laughs> yeah, not much. Um, so we were all fancy. Um, the this friend of mine and I were walking walking down. It's peaceful. There's nobody out, and you get to the corner and out across the street at the opposite intersection. Um, this guy walks kind of out of the shadows, so he's probably 15 meters away across the street, and there's a sort of a car parked on the sidewalk. And as soon as I see him, he he pulls the gun out of his hoodie and points it at us from across the street as he's looking around. And it's that moment where you turn into autopilot. Yeah. Because you, I just entered a reality that I've never experienced. I've never really been a victim or seen any violent crime. I am now way out of my element. And when something like that happens, it just turns to disbelief. Like, am I hallucinating? Is this a video game? It's so, so shockingly different to your normal reality. Yeah. Um, that it it takes you, and I just, I stopped. Instead of turning and running, I was just, I just remember going, oh, fuck. <laughs> you knew it was a gun straight away? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you could see it right away. And, and the since it was other- already pointed at us from, uh, let's say, 10, 20 meters away, hmm. I was like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, so the girl's on my left. I'm on the right. And the guy's coming from my right, sort of across the street. And it's pretty obvious what he wanted. Uh, and I just wanted to autopilot. And I remember being overwhelmingly calm during the whole incident, which probably lasted a minute. Right. Shock, do you think? Um, I don't know. It's a combination of, I think, learning how to deal with stress, which I think I've only got from jujitsu because I had a beautiful childhood. I had, you know, grew up in a peaceful town. And something like this would not be something you could right. do comfortably. This is not something I would be used to, right. but I had practiced weapon defenses and I knew the limits of those techniques, which is a crucial part. So I understood range of combat at that stage. Yeah. And, and even though I knew nothing about firearms then, um, for some reason I was so calm, I was able to, because he was looking, he just wanted money, right? Just wanted cash to get out. And I pulled the cash out of my wallet and put my wallet back in my pocket. Right. And the girl I was with gave him her whole purse, which had her keys, her ID, um, maybe her phone? Yeah, yeah, because he um, he demanded uh, our phones as well. And that was where I had enough consciousness to draw the line. Yeah. I wasn't going to give up my lifeline to 911, which is triple zero in Australia. Yeah. 
So I had my phone in my front pocket and I actually had a digital camera in my left front pocket. And I lied to him. I said, man, I don't have a phone. I don't have a phone. And he doesn't want to hang, hang around and argue. And it was yeah. kind of dark. So, um, but I wasn't, I wasn't ready to give that up. Yeah. Know, that was where I drew the line. Um, but the way, the way he held the gun is what determined that I complied. Had it been closer, I'm not sure if I had would have done something. I might have. I don't know. If it was clo- the range was yeah. closer, you think you might have tried to because he had the gun intercept. sort of by his hip and his his hand was close to his body and he had good control. Yeah, yeah. There was a meter and a half of distance between myself and, and the pistol. Yeah, and that's too much distance to cover. Yeah. To pull a trigger, uh, ten millimeters, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're not gonna win that race. No way. Um, so, I made that decision, and do you, do you, let me ask you this before you carry sure. on. Do you do you recall having like a split second thought in your mind that it's actually considering and weighing up whether you should do something and then realizing the situation, realizing the distance and then understanding, no, I should not do anything. Yes. I'll comply. Yes. And I remember hearing Baz Rutten's voice in my head, redirect the line of fire. Um, and I sort of went through the motion of if the, if the muzzle was in close to my chest, mm-hmm. grabbing with my left hand, coming over the top, Mm. grabbing the gun uh, distraction <laughs> distracting punches grabbing the gun pulling it out creating distance racking the slide um, but that situation never presented itself for that op- that specific opportunity mm. but because I had that backup plan I was like alright I can't do anything now not now you just gotta wait for it yeah wait for the right moment yeah you knew what the moment was and if I didn't have anything it probably would have been sheer panic um you could have dived in at the pistol and yeah that would be ego eating bullets yeah you'd be going home in a bag uh and after he had our valuables he told us to turn and run the other way and that's where i drew the line again i said nope you go that way i'm not getting shot in the back you said that to him um I don't think I said that, but that was the thought I had. But yeah. I, I told him, no, you, you go that way. I'm not I'm not turning my back to this guy. No way. Yeah. If he's going to start doing something, I'm going in. Yeah. Uh, and... Again. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu. Yeah. I, had, I, know, <laughs> I knew I could take somebody's back and, and put them to sleep at that stage. Yeah. It wouldn't be the best, but in that situation, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be messy no matter how much training you have. Yeah, of course. Um, and he ran off, uh, in that direction and I pulled out my phone and dialed 911 and I realized I didn't know what street was on, didn't know, didn't know where I was to give my location. Um, I could, it's pretty tough to describe a, any distinguishing features of a black male wearing a hoodie in New Orleans. Yeah, right. <laughs> Pretty, yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, 
<laughs> every yeah. second person. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's pretty tough. But uh, after the event, I was a complete mess. But during the event, I was so calm. And that I was really surprised at. I had just gone through that and handled it better than I could have thought, but I was just on autopilot. Yeah. I wasn't steering. <laughs> it was it was really strange. I mean, it's just an adrenaline dump. Um, that real fight or flight response is just ticking back and forth. Which one are you going to do? Which one are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, and that... Well, it sounds like you made yeah. all of the right decisions, really. Yes. At, at each of the key moments. Your brain does not let you think that. And so I got to learn a lot about uh, post-traumatic stress from that event mm. that many people of all circumstances go through from different reasons in their life, different events in their mm. life. Of course. Did it have, other than moments after, obviously, when you came back to reality out of autopilot and into your own body and you're able to feel the emotions of how you really felt. Oh, yeah. Obviously, that was wreck. That wasn't nice, but did you have any um, ongoing like PTSD yeah, types? Yeah, about sort of... six months. Right, wow. About six months. And the catalyst, I think, for getting over that was learning everything I could about firearms. Mm-hmm. Because I had this incredible fear uh, and your brain replays that event over and over and over again. And it, and it wants to make you the action hero of your head because you've got this high def video of this event because your brain is really switched on. Yeah. So you replay, okay, well, if you had done this, I could have done that. And then you just replay it over and over and over again. And you never ask it to come up in your brain. It just says, hey, we're going to think about this. Yeah. And you find your um, your heart rate racing. Yeah. And I'd be at work in front of my computer. And it would come up. And I would, I would see the end of the barrel. And my heart rate would start racing. And I'm pretty sure I've snapped a few pencils. <laughs> because... <laughs> because of that stress and I just had to get up from my computer and just go for a walk and I um, it was a really good look into how the brain works to keep someone safe yeah um, like when you you get burned it's so painful it tells you not to do that again and while I wasn't physically injured the threat of being injured was so intense that your brain reminds you, hey, don't ever do this again. Yeah, of course. Even when you're like, I got it, I got it, I'm re- I can figure this out, I don't plan on doing that again. It says, no, I'm going to remind you every day, every single day. It took six months where I had, six months until I had a day where that memory didn't come up on its own. Really? Yeah. And if you could imagine the stress that comes with that and... And the distraction of everything you're trying to focus on with work. Absolutely. And, and, you, you just know. clenched fists during the most mundane uh, task. Mm-hmm. You could be anywhere. You could be sitting in traffic. You could be in the shower. Um, there are many nights where I 
you know, you lie down to sleep and then just before you go to sleep, it pops into your head. Yeah. Time and then you, yeah. you can't go to bed. Yeah. Uh, and you got to just distract yourself. Um, so let me, let me ask you, how did you, I mean, obviously it sounds like that was a pretty difficult time to go through and I can imagine, um, how you said it took six months before it started subsiding. Yeah. How, how did you in the end, I mean, I'm assuming you're completely over it now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I am. Yeah. You seem pretty comfortable talking about it. It's taken me a while to, to, to get there. To an extent. Yeah. I can tell like it's not an easy memory to bring up, but how did you sort of get over that with the firearms like how did that help you get over it it made me realize that fear comes from the unknown right and I remember thinking oh I never I never saw him like cock the gun or I didn't I knew nothing about this gun and how to tell if it was loaded or if it's not and your brain asks all these questions if it was real yeah oh it definitely was (laughs) (laughs) um but you can't see the magazine inside it. But you assume the worst, like there's one in yeah, the chamber. Of course, it's ready to go. In that circumstance, you don't take chances. Right, but I didn't. I didn't know the difference. Mm. Um, to know, like, if you could see, there are some weapons where you have to pull the hammer back. Yep. And there are some where you don't. It's yeah, called double action. As as you click it in, it goes yeah, back and it comes cocks forward. it yeah. and fires it yeah. in the same motion. I had no idea. So, um, one of my best friends was um, had a, did a little hunting and was also interested in taking a, a pistol course and in Virginia it's pretty easy to do that um, so I took we took a concealed carry course wow uh, which was pretty rudimentary training it was it was more of a safety course yeah okay here's um, the safety button you can carry a gun now <laughs> uh yeah, you you, t- you pass a background check, and I think it was fifty dollars to get a concealed carry permit. And I did a lot of research. I read up. Uh, I've watched so many videos, and that knowledge and education on firearms and how they work drove that fear to respect. Yeah, yeah. Respect the danger. Understand how they can work. You can physically grab a. Um, most pistols uh, while they fire and your hand will not be blown off. Um, and it will jam the gun if you're holding the slide. That's, right. a, that's good to know if you're going to use, if you're going to grab it to defend yourself, to redirect. Yeah. I had no idea about any of that. I mean, even I've, I've I mean, I, I don't have a very good understanding of guns and I'd imagine no. if you put your hand over the, the end of the gun, and they shot at that close range. I mean, I'd assume maybe not that it would blow your hand off, but that it would certainly go straight through. It'll go straight through, yeah. But I mean, uh, grabbing over the the uh, ejection port, right? The slide uh, recoils and ah, uh, you pin that eject- shot. It can't yeah. go back and then fire yeah. the bullet. And right. the, well, it can fire, but it won't fire the second one on a semi-automatic pistol, right? Because it'll jam, right, right, right. And it takes a little work to clear it. So, where were we? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that helped, and I ended up being a concealed carry holder in Virginia, which had a lot of crime. Yeah. There's a lot of um, gangs, and uh, America's a strange place. It really is, and carrying didn't make me feel any safer. 
Um, but if I was going to give myself a 1% chance at being safer in a lethal situation, that was what I was going to do because right. my jujitsu cannot handle firearms. Mm. You need distance for that. And in the States, having guns, I mean, gun control is a whole, a whole thing we could go it's into whole, it's talk a whole about thing, forever. But you're, but you're much more likely to run into one yeah, in Yeah, I mean, US. in Australia, if I, if I got into an altercation on the street, I'd, I mean, the last thing I'd be thinking about is a gun. Yeah. Maybe a knife yeah. I would consider, um, or even just a standard fist fight. But that's what you'd assume is happening. You yeah. would not think that the person's going to pull a gun on you. No. But in the States, that's a, that's a, re, that's a reality. They might have two on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one, one in the ankle, one in the waist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was what my concealed carry instructor, he carried one on his ankle and one on his waist. Yeah, wow. Because if you're going to have one, you might as well have a backup, right? Yeah. Um, but this was in the South where gun culture is pretty big. And there's not heaps of laws, but... Right. So I realized from that lesson that there was a greater than 0% chance of a catastrophic event happening to me. Yeah. And that if I do not do everything I can to improve my odds of survival 1%, then I'm gambling. Yeah. And some people are okay with that. And that's that's their decision. But if it can happen to me once, it can happen to me again. Yeah. So that's why I learned how to shoot and I spent a lot of time in training and uh, was pretty happy to leave that behind when I moved to Australia. Yeah. And did, was that part of what motivated you to continue learning jiu-jitsu a lot more, like more so even than you were before? Yes, I think so. Uh, it took me a couple months before I could approach the subject. I was really shaken up. Yeah, I'd imagine. Uh, and then I think I... Yeah, I think I bought, uh, like, a training firearm for that. Um, but it's kind of a fallacy as well, because if you're going to go out and have some drinks, you're not going to be carrying a firearm. Mm. Besides from being illegal, it's stupid. <laughs> you, you, can't, just, you, can't, you can't carry a um, no. firearm while under the influence. <clears throat> Absolutely not. So... Replaying, if it was my birthday, I was going out drinking, I wouldn't have been carrying anyway. Yeah. So you would have still been, even with the knowledge now that you had yeah. after the fact, you, in that circumstance, would have still been in the same position. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but at least you'd have a better understanding of pistols yeah, and absolutely. maybe to assess the situation differently or yeah. have been more comfortable. I'm, I'm or been sure. able to describe the weapon better yeah. to police. Uh, yeah. So there's all those other factors. Yeah. Um, so, how so? How long you mentioned Australia? Uh, what did you have any other experiences with jujitsu between? The, I guess that incident, your twenty fifth birthday, the year later, uh, when you got your blue belt. Yeah. How, how soon after that did you um, change gyms or, or come over to Australia? Uh, I know you've tra- trained at other. Yeah, twenty fifteen. I quit my job, um, fixing submarines, and I moved back home to Vermont. Mm-hmm. And back to the town of 900 people because I just needed, I needed to find my roots again and get rid of all this sort of stress and anxiety that was building up. And my my friend who owned a yoga studio in town, um, I started doing yoga there, and I would wear my gi pants 
and I think it was I think it was my bad boy gi pants. So they had the little eyes on that and it said <laughs> jiu-jitsu on or something. And she asked me if I wanted to teach some classes, and I said, sure, why not? Diversify. So um, we had an arrangement. I bought some mats, or I think she loaned me some money to buy some mats. And I opened up a, a jujitsu classes. I think it was twice a week uh, by donation. Because this is a town of nine hundred, a thousand people, so people don't have a lot of money. They have no idea what jujitsu is. Absolutely zero. <laughs> yeah, and and a peaceful town by all accounts. Uh, yeah. 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 So people aren't thinking that they're, you know, they need self-defense. Exactly. Sort of. There's yeah. almost zero crime. Right. Okay. So how did how did that go with the pretty and- pretty slow start? But I had one uh, mom that had the summer off, and she was with me for two months, and by the end she could hip throw me and armbar me and start to like get a handle of of jujitsu, and I was so impressed. That's, that's I made awesome. some videos of her, but the real gem of that summer was this old lady. I can't remember her name. She's a grandmother. She was in her seventies. She lived in the same building um, by herself, so she's pretty bored. Yeah, and came in for a class on a day that nobody showed up, so that happened quite a bit. So. Um, She's not very mobile at all. Her hips are bad. It took her probably a minute, maybe 60 seconds to stand up. Wow. And you think, like, that's a long time. Yeah. And I was like, all right, well, we're going to set all the advanced stuff aside and all the beginner stuff aside for you. Let's see if we can just get you moving a little bit better. And so we worked with a technical stand-up, standing yeah, up in base. Yeah. But she doesn't have the strength to lift or the balance with one arm and one leg to lift herself up. So we went two hands on the mat. And I got her to build a base one step at a time to stand up, and it now it only took her 20 seconds to stand up. Yeah. And I was like, hey, that's a big improvement. Yeah. And... And she was using it? Well... <laughs> I think she came in for maybe one class and then I didn't see her for a while or something. And she said, oh, that was great. How much do I owe you? I said, nothing. It was, that was amazing just meeting you. She came back a couple weeks later and said, I wanted to thank you. I fell off the porch like a week ago and I couldn't get up. And I was lying there in the grass until I remembered how you told me to stand up and I was able to get up. That's and awesome. Oh my God, that was the best thing I've ever heard in my life. That was like jujitsu is so, so much more than strangling people. Yeah. It really, it's like that, efficient biomechanics. I, to, I don't want to uh, take away from that because that's amazing. That's like amazing. And um, on a personal level, um, my, my pop back home, he's like 87 and he's had like his balance isn't very good and he's fallen over before like even recently and um like not really been injured but is unable to get up like can't get up yeah and my nan has and my nan's not strong enough to pick him up and he right. can't, he can't get up himself so there's been instances where he's um 
basically on the ground and Nan runs over to the neighbours or calls the neighbours and then their husband will come over and help my pop get up. And there's been another occasion where um, it's in the middle of the night and pop was... Uh, my nan's got really bad hearing, uh, hearing, sorry. Pop went to the toilet, like at the other end of the house to avoid waking her up. And then for whatever reason, however it happened, he fell over and nan's fast asleep and Pop's sort of yelling out to her for like 40 minutes before. Um, like, yeah, that's, yeah a, that's a scary moment. Yeah, he could get up and he, like it's, I mean, there's not much more to say than that. That paints a picture of, you know, that he, he can't get up. And I haven't been home in since Christmas last year so a year pretty much or 10 months and I my intention obviously with jiu-jitsu is to go home and to teach my pop the technical yeah. stand-up or at least try to give him yeah. a better give him a fighting chance you're gonna need two hands on the mat but it, it a works a slight adjustment you're it's okay. how it's how toddlers stand up I saw in the airport uh, my most recent trip this are you threading the leg at all? Um, just... toddlers don't yeah um, and old people won't be able to but yeah. you can get to your knees um, getting to your knees and then putting one foot up at a time uh, but toddlers will put hand, both hands on the mat and then they put their butt up in the air Yeah. and then they stand up and I watched this toddler do it over and over again because she f- kept falling down it was adorable but she stood up the same way every single time mm. and if, when, if you have baby strength and you apply that to how to stand up it's much more efficient mm. So while I was on this so, hiatus, so that one that one instance there helping that old woman sort of made it all worth it. Yeah, that was yeah. pretty cool, uh, and I only made enough money to really like buy myself lunch. And at the end, when I left for Australia, I donated the mats back to my students so they could train at home. Yeah, um, I also had a, I think he was a six or eight year old kid with Down syndrome, who I taught who picked up the technical stand up really quickly I was really surprised because uh, his dad wanted to sort of prepare him to be able to sort of defend himself from kids picking on him but not be violent yeah and so it didn't show him any real attacks but how to how to hug people yeah close distance stay yeah safe. and how to yeah. how to sort of keep someone on the ground put the hooks in uh, which was really cool so that was a really nice inspiring moment jiu-jitsu for me of what it can what it's capable of doing mm. during that summer i went to my first uh globe trotters camp if you guys don't know what that is um brazilian jiu-jitsu globe trotters is a sort of decentralized jiu-jitsu association there's no membership fees there's no politics it's just people from around the world that like to get together and train you can, doesn't matter where you're from what what you do and they put on these awesome camps uh, around the world and that summer they did one next state over in New Hampshire mm-hmm. and I went for a week I had, hadn't really trained jiu-jitsu in I don't know, six months eight months or something not with anyone good that could teach me anything and the highlight of that was a guy named Chris Howder uh, teaching a seminar towards the end and that was when I f- first saw what I would call like an OG, an original gangster of jiu-jitsu. He's one of the dirty dozen, the first 12 American black belts yeah. in the U.S. Wow, okay. Um, started with Horian in his garage back in California in the early 90s. So 
when he gave his seminar and his speech, um, he was like the prophet, and then he showed how to wrap up somebody's hands while they were trying to hit you. Yeah. And my jaw just like hit the floor. <laughs> I was, I was going this from standing or from on the ground. Uh, on the ground. Right. Yeah. 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 Punch block defense type thing. Or yeah, but at a, such a high level that he twisted this guy into a pretzel. <laughs> it was so cool. And I was going, this is the jujitsu that I've been looking for. Yeah. What the hell? And and I never forgot that. So after that, um, I thought my jujitsu was kind of good. And I ended up doing, entering a, what was called a fusion fight. Right. Back in near my hometown with one of my old Taekwondo uh, instructors who runs a Taekwondo academy in a small town nearby. He's got, I don't know, 15, 20 students or something. Right. Profit margins are not large. (laughs) (laughs) But I trained with him maybe for a couple weeks to try to get some striking. And I wanted to do this fight because it was grappling allowed with striking, uh, with headgear and uh, mitts and shin pads. Right. And I thought, I'm just going to mop up. I'm just going to take this guy down and I'm just going to strangle him. (laughs) And it didn't go that well. Really? My jiu-jitsu was sport jiu-jitsu and I was comfortable at striking range, like sleeve and collar grip. Yeah. And I took this guy down like three times, but I couldn't keep him down. And I was hunting for submissions and I had a couple opportunities to finish him, but I just never executed that last step to get the tap. And I ended up losing a judge's decision, split decision, three to two um, for that. But it was one three minute round and I had my first double leg takedown where he was airborne and I got this huge adrenaline dump and I had no gas after that. I had 30 seconds of gas. So that that, sounds like, that's like a standard street fight. Really. Yeah. That solidified <laughs> my quest for learning self-defense jujitsu. Yeah. Learning I, how to deal with that. I remember one of our very first conversations when you joined our gym and you spoke a lot about like you, that is what you were looking for. And you said, and I remember you saying, like, I finally feel like I found the right place. Yeah. You had, you had that, you felt yeah. that way pretty quickly um, in our gym. Actually, probably within the first year when Maddie taught punch block uh, defense from guard, he was subbing for John. I don't know, this may be the f- first year I was here. And I got, oh God, my God, I've been training jujitsu for five calendar years. This is the first class I've been to with punch block defense. How has this been avoided? And I was trying to figure out whose responsibility it was. Is it mine? Is it my coaches? Yeah. How come nobody ever mentioned this shit? <laughs> like, and it's, that's like that's before you even learn jujitsu, you could you could have the basic understanding of like the the four punch block stages, punch block defense yeah. stages, and that on its own, if you were okay with that you might be okay to, to stay safe with someone on top of you. Yeah. J- just I mean, knowing that. pretty much worst case scenario. Yeah. Besides mount and back, that's 
it's it's a very likely worst case scenario. Yeah, for sure. Um, so sorry, you I had to detract there. So you, uh, following from the fusion fight fusion story, is this tie in roughly when you came to Australia? Uh, a few months after, yeah. Right. Okay. And did you join exactly. any other gyms before you came to ours, or how, how did it? Come, yeah. How so did it come I moved about to Sydney, twenty sixteen, and I was studying at UNSW. Right. First semester, I buckled down and hit the books, and I didn't train anything. Uh, then I started training judo because it was on campus, and I was living on campus. They have a pretty good judo program there. And I thought that was pretty cool, and I wanted to work on my stand up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it was sleeve and collar grip. So you're at you're at striking distance, and I remember the judo guys kind of uh, giving me shit for standing up in base and putting my my hand up on my head as I as I stood up. And it's like, why are you standing up so weird? I'm like, for self defense, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> kind of questioning myself now. <laughs> um, but I enjoyed that. It's randori in judo is like a hundred percent because it's sport first, self defense second. Yeah. Well, to elaborate on that, I remember at the, I think it was the London Olympics, one of the judo guys who won a, uh, maybe it was a bronze medal, he won the medal and he was like, obviously like celebrating, partying, drinking, and he got bashed and robbed on the beach. Oh, really? <laughs> it was like a day or two after he won a medal. Oh. Yeah, like, seriously. <laughs> I never knew that. And I remember thinking like, how does that happen? An Olympic medal winner in judo yeah. gets bashed. I mean, I'd imagine he's had, you The know, guy must thousand, have been shirtless. Mate, he's Nothing been, to grab onto. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And he would have been, you know, 50,000 drinks deep after four years of, you know, blood, sweat and tears preparing for that moment. Once it's over, you kind of just let your hair down a bit, you know, probably in a vulnerable state as it was. But still, it goes to show you that self-defense, if it's not self-defense martial arts, sometimes it's not always applicable in a self-defense situation. Absolutely. And when you get that adrenaline dump and you start panic breathing, which you don't have control over... Mm. You get low on oxygen, and all your technique goes out the window. Mm-hmm. You're left down to the dull instincts you have, and it's sloppy. And it's good to know what those are from time to time. Mm-hmm. It's not particularly fun always, but for me. Uh, but you realize your fine jujitsu technique, playing around with your friends in the gym. Half of that goes right out the window. Yeah, and you just. Uh, so to train yourself to stay calm in that, that's that is the biggest asset in jujitsu, is to breathe and relax during a chaotic fight. Yeah. That is something you're you can never be born with. Uh, or, or never really get a yeah unless you do jujitsu and and you put in that environment even in a simulated and safe environment you know yeah. holistically that's still the best way to prepare yourself for the worst case scenario yeah when you come up against someone who you know chances are they don't have any of that knowledge definitely and I think the way jujitsu does that in the incremental steps of they present you with uh, a problem that when you first see it you think it's impossible to solve Mm -hmm. the guy's on top of me I'm screwed yeah can't solve this problem and then somebody like John or professor comes by and says here's the answer now the problem is solved it was easy right jujitsu is easy (laughs) and you go holy shit (laughs) that wasn't that bad 
So the next time it happens, and as you get more technique, you panic less and less and less. Yeah. And then there's a guy sitting on your head, and you go, this is fine. I'm okay. He doesn't have my arms. He doesn't have my neck. Yeah. Um, you just become comfortable under all yeah. those uncomfortable. Come at, Become comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yeah. Or some guy's sweaty, sweaty fat chest is on my face, and he's mounted me, and you're like, just got to breathe here. There's nothing I can do until he moves. There's <laughs> nothing you can do. Just be patient. Yeah. 130 kilos on you. What are you going to do? You got to wait until he does something different. Yeah. Don't give him your elbows. Yeah. He can't choke you. You just got to stay, you know, stay he safe. He can smother you, but you yeah. can't reach your neck. Um, so let me let me ask you, how how did you find out about our gym? And just give me, I just want, I just want to understand your experience so far. Because you've been at our gym for quite a while now and you've, you've taught classes. Just run me through yeah. your experience. I'm kind of embarrassed how I found higher jujitsu. Uh... Because of a Google search. Not so much that, but I use Google Maps to find um, whatever I'm looking for. And I was helping out uh, a coach at a legacy gym in Marubra, just helping him teach kids classes. And I was able to train there, and I fell right back into the sport jujitsu again. Right. So I made a commitment after, I think, a year of uni to say, Jiu-Jitsu is important to me. I've been thinking about it every day mm-hmm. for the past six years. <laughs> I need to make a commitment to train Jiu-Jitsu. I'll find the time. I'll find the money. I had to have that switch. And once I was back into that sort of sport mode and getting smashed by strong white belts, my Jiu-Jitsu just wasn't really getting there because I don't have a lot of athletic attributes. Mm. I started looking elsewhere and I had a I had an internship in North Sydney and I was living in Randwick. So on the way home is, was higher jujitsu. And I was like, Oh, it's halfway. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah. Pull up the website and immediately I saw John's perspective and notes on the website aligned exactly with what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. Like mindfulness of movement Mm -hmm. and old school Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and I was like yes and this was just after he had been affiliated with Pedro Sauer yeah and I was like I remember that guy he fought Mr. Utah yes this is the place and went in for a gave John a call came in on a Tuesday night it was me and one other guy on a Tuesday night and I think that guy was maybe from the old PMA gym he was just kind of visiting mm-hmm and I was like, well, all right, small school. It's, a, it's at a, um, it's not a standalone. It's inside a, inside like a PCYC. That's all right. Puzzle mats, clean bathrooms. All right. It's, I mean, and I talked to, the more I talked to John, the more I realized that it was, it was going to be a good fit. Yeah. And it was on the way home, which was handy. And a Tuesday night probably didn't work the best for you because we, I was training, I was already at the gym, right? When you, I think I started probably, in February yeah, 16. Probably, yeah, probably. And most people at that stage were doing the Monday and Wednesday nights. Yeah, there they were the two nights that always had the numbers. There weren't heaps of classes either. Yeah. Or students. <laughs> yeah, no, there wasn't. There was like eight or nine students and in class. I remember John was sometimes. like, yeah, just come on, come on Tuesday or uh, Monday or Wednesday. There'll be more people. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and I remember thinking for about three seconds, oh, he's only a brown belt. And after, I was like, oh, nope, he knows his shit. Okay, this is cool. And it's, it's a totally, totally different approach to jujitsu instead of warm-up drills, uh, guard passing drills, neon belly drills, drill, 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 move it, move it, move it, carry your partner across the mat. Uh, it was just totally the right approach that I was looking for. You're right. Yeah. And uh, so, tell me about. So you said it was the right approach, and what have you in the time that you've been here? How do you feel about your jujitsu development and just the gym as a whole, man? Because we've we've been at the gym for a similar amount of time. Like, there's not much yeah. difference, and it's. I mean, it's evolved so much. Oh, you can feel it. Yeah, you can like, feel it. It's crazy. It's crazy. Even the guys that have been here six months, you can feel the difference. They're yeah. catching stuff. And I have grown... My jiu-jitsu has improved more in the last year than pretty much my entire career. Yeah. Because I had to start from scratch. Uh, had to get my second blue belt. And leave, leave those... I wouldn't say leave the sport techniques behind, but set them to the side. Yeah. They're still there, but I don't play spider guard anymore I don't play around with X guard too much unless I just wind up there uh, all that sport specific stuff unless I'm just playing around at an open mat or something mm-hmm. and I don't really want to fight anyone the pace we train at allows me to think can I be hit from here Yeah. if someone is coming at you full force and you're panicking um, you're not going to be thinking, can I be hit from here? Mm-hmm. But if you're going at a, a medium pace, you're like, all right, protect your head, protect your head, protect your groin. Um, don't let them grab both your feet. And the more repetitions I have of that, I know I'm changing my instincts. So should I need it in the future that my instincts are going to be they're going to serve you well. They're going to be the right instincts. Yeah. 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 That's the thing. It's hard to develop instincts because that's, like you said, in a in a life or death situation or like a, you know, a street fight breaks out or something, it's your, it's your instincts that are really going to yeah. serve you well. That's 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 all you're going to fall to. You're going to fall to the... Do you think about the five or six you're moves, You're going to go to caveman jiu-jitsu. Yeah. You'll go to what you really, really know well. That's what you'll do. And that's why... I always say it's the fundamentals are the most important. The fundamentals. That's what you need to really, really be proficient at. Yeah. Because the- they're the things. There is what everything else is built around. It's like a pyramid. The, the, the better your base being the fundamentals... And as you go up, you're adding things on. You're adding yeah. like the trick moves and the you know all I had that to other stuff. Relearn fundamentals. The, the better your yeah. base, yeah. The better your base, the better you will be served across the rest of your jujitsu. Which is why when I was talking to, I think it was Matt, was saying that your white belt is the most important belt, and it's true because that's where you develop the most of your yeah. fundamental you skills. You go from zero jujitsu to all jujitsu. Well, yeah. just knowing the fundamentals, <laughs> yeah. and from there, everything else evolves. True. And it's and it's all about while well, you progress through belts and learn more of the other stuff, 
you're continually fine refining those fundamentals. So that's yeah. that's the thing that you really, at a base level, just want to be very good at. Definitely. Um, and as <laughs> as uh, Chris, I'm going to paraphrase Chris Howder. It's easy to be seduced by the looping, swooping, swirling nature of guard. But the like the original Gracie Jiu Jitsu in the '90s was like 30 moves. Yeah, that was it. And since then, they've grabbed stuff from blue and purple belts, and and it's just evolved and grown from there. But the old UFC fights and Pride fights with Hickson and uh, Henzo and those guys, it's not super complicated. Mm. It's tough. And the timing is really uh, difficult, and that's the hardest part. I think there's no super complex moves that you see in those fights. It's a lot of patience because there's usually not much time limit or weight class, and it's a lot of energy management. Yeah, and essentially oxygen management, which is a technique. And if you don't know that, it doesn't matter how much. Uh, if you're a black belt with no oxygen, you're not a black belt, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't use that. And um, so, if, if you're if you're if you're a black belt and you're only good for four, like two minutes, right? Right. It's not worth much when Absolutely. when there's black belts out there that are good for you know twenty minutes. And I think it was what Chris Howder said at the seminar that if all right here. If I don't know where his hands are at all times with my eyes closed, it's raining knuckles. First hit, I'm a purple belt. Second hit, I'm a blue belt. Yeah. Third hit, I'm done. Yeah. Right? And that stuck with me ever since. So if you want that for your mantra for jujitsu, if you don't know where their hands are at all times with your eyes closed, it's raining knuckles. So that's the connection. Yeah, but it, it's keep the hands are the the items that kill you. Yeah. You can't be stabbed from a foot. You can't be shot with a foot. It's the hands. Yeah. And you have to know where the hands are and control them and know what they're doing and shut them down before they get an advantage uh, over you. That's a defensive mindset as well. But if you're looking at it from an offensive mindset. If you're trying to, if you've got someone's back and you're trying to, you know, get their neck and they're defending with two hands, it's a lot harder to get than if you can trap one hand and take one of their defenses yeah, away from them. Absolutely. Then they've only got one. Down by half. Yeah. It's a pretty good ratio. So yeah, the hands on both sides. Yeah. Um, have you got much, much else to add about your story? Because I think we kind of got to, to where we are now, right? That's a pretty, pretty good recap. Uh, maybe we could do a part two if we want to deep dive into some other things. But yeah. uh, chronologically, that's just about it. So let me let me before we go, let me ask you what are you what are your um, sort of future plans with jujitsu? I know you're going for your purple belt in December, right? Uh, fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's be very well deserved when it comes. That's for sure. Oh yeah, I've been putting a lot more work in this year, and I've. Uh, I've made the time. A couple of years ago, I stopped saying I don't have time. Yeah. And started saying I'm not making time. You make it a priority. Yeah. yeah. And you plan on doing this obviously forever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I want to once when we went to Brazil and you see these old guys 
still able to smash people. Yeah. And how easy it is for them. You go, I want to do that. Even, but, even just to be on the mats. Yeah. I mean, how much we, everyone enjoy, I just enjoy being on the mats, you know, and it's, it's one of the best parts of my life training and I'd love to be able to be 50 or 60 and still doing it. Yeah. Have an activity that never gets old. Yeah. Not many of those that you can do for a while. Uh, if you're just looking for exercise and you go to the gym, it gets old really quickly. Yeah. How exciting is a treadmill? Oh, they put a TV in front of it. Oh, that's great. That's really <laughs> motivating. That's so, not good. so you watch the news while you run in place in an air-conditioned environment. It's not what bodies are meant for. Like, learn how to do something effective like, with your like body. That's like a bloody a hamster on a wheel. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> a hamster wheel. Yeah. All righty. Well, let's, let's wrap it up here. Um, we'll chat and see if there's anything else we're going to do, but... Guys, thank you for uh, tuning in. I will say on the way out that uh, this podcast is now officially available on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. In addition to that, uh, when it's called The Higher Jiu-Jitsu Show, so please look for it there. If you want to subscribe and uh, leave a review, please feel free to do so. Uh, we also have a Instagram, which I've just created for John, which is called the HJJ underscore stories underscore podcast. And we will be posting pictures of uh, whoever we interview and putting them up and trying to promote the, the podcast along with our gym itself. So overall, when you connect the podcast and John's gym together, I'm hoping that they can both feed into each other. But overall, you know, mostly feed to the gym would be ideal if we if this helps grow the gym then that's all i can ask for yeah and help everyone that's in our gym get a better understanding of one another's lives off the mats even Definitely. if even if this doesn't go further than you know the people with inside our four walls at high jiu-jitsu that's okay i don't mind that but if it helps us build the community that we have that we all value so much even just a little bit it'll be it'll be worth it yeah it's different here it's good yeah I haven't found another one like it I've I've looked in a few different countries, guys. <laughs> <laughs> everyone keeps saying that, so it must be true. Yeah. All right. On that note, thank you, everyone, and uh, thank you, thank you, Nick. <laughs>